Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, it is time once again for Cody Townsend and me to review the news, and we have got some really big topics this time around. And as always, you can check the show notes of this episode for the specific topics and the accompanying timestamps if you want to get a sense of what we're going to be talking about here, or you can just sit back, relax, and take the ride with us. And before we get going, I do want to tell you about our upcoming Blister Summit. It kicks off February 20th right here in Mount Crested Butte. We have a bunch of really interesting brands that are going to be at the summit, including Kessley. And a number of you have written in to say that you want to see more Kessley reviews out of us. Well, at the Blister Summit, you're going to have a chance to get on some Kessleys yourself. You can probably grab me or some of our other Blister reviewers, tell us to get on the exact same ski as you, and then we'll go ski them together and you can get a real-time, first-hand review of what we think of the particular Kessley ski of your choosing. So there's that. And related note, you will have a chance to talk with, hang out with, and ski with all of our various Blister reviewers, including Paul Forward, who's coming out from Girdwood, Alaska to be at the summit. I was talking with Paul again last night. He's excited to get out here. So... You know, come ski with your favorite Blister reviewer, whether that's Paul Forward or Eric Friesen or Kara Williard or Kristen Sinat or Luke Kappa or, you know, maybe even like Dylan Wood. I don't know. Is that possible? Is Dylan's anybody favorite reviewer? Who knows? Furthermore, you will also have the opportunity to hang out with and go ski with professional skiers like Chris Davenport and Julian Carr and McKenna Peterson and probably some other people that we're going to be naming. Then there will also be product designers out here, like Jed Yeiser, K2's head ski designer, and Matt Sturbins from Wonder Alpine. And honestly, there are too many really interesting people from the snow sports world that are going to be at this thing, and this is your opportunity to meet them, ask them questions, go ski with them, and sit in on panel sessions where you're going to have opportunities to ask more questions. So anyway, that's what we've got going on at the Blister Summit. So come get on a bunch of skis. You can go on backcountry tours with professional guides. That is included in the price of your registration for the summit. And, you know, come have a great time with us here in Mount Crested Butte. All right, and with that, it is time now to review the news and talk about a whole bunch of other stuff with Cody Townsend. Here we go. All right, well, Cody, I think this might be our last podcast together since I don't know how I feel about having on as a regular guest somebody that goes and skis crappy snow inbounds on pin bindings and lightweight skis. It's kind of everything I'm against. 
Yeah, it is kind of everything, I guess. And I, on that same token, I don't know if I can continue on a podcast with someone that pretty much would take their skis out of the wrapper, put them on a scale, and the heaviest ones equate to the best ones. <laughs> All right, these boots, they weigh eight and a half pounds. They're going to be pretty good. But these boots are 10 pounds. They're better. That's kind of what my summation of your ski preferences. <laughs> I, I feel like I have been stereotyped unfairly Cody whereas I whereas I just I've seen video I've seen video of you doing the thing in bounds in you know tech bindings by the way we have a flash review up on blister I went out and did a fairly big day in the backcountry in the Solomon S lab mountain summit boot where as we were talking about I think a while ago off air this whole thing where your very first turns ever like in a new boot or, or on a new ski, you're like, I hope this kind of works. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking my, it was actually like I'd modded out a pair of X Alps. Um, and then I got a pair of the MTN 95s and I'd never skied them before. So I mounted that whole setup up and then my first turns on them were at the top of the Grand Teton. <laughs> <laughs> I remember specifically like clicking into them and like saying, I'm like, wow, wonder how these skis are going to work as you're skiing. Like, uh, it's not super steep, but it's got very fatal exposure. I'm just like, oh, wonder how the setup is going to feel. So, so yeah, sometimes you got to do what you got to do, but that's why I'm taking this new philosophy where, <clears throat> you know, I kind of realized at one point, and I put this up in a post today that, you know, we train for backcountry skiing, technical uh, backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering quite often on the fitness side of things. But, you know, on St. Elias last year, the snow was just downright heinous in places like barely edgeable. And you're on a place where you've got like three to 5,000 feet of exposure, like a fall is 100% fatal. And it's really, really intimidating. You got a heavy pack on, you got lightweight boots, lightweight skis. And like, I don't have actually that much time on that sort of setup. And I kind of realized like in these high pressures and that we just have terrible snow right now. Well, this is actually a perfect time to get that feel, to get that confidence because on St. Elias last year, I remember having these moments where all of a sudden I was like getting a little back because my pack was so heavy, but then my tip wasn't connecting quite like I wanted to. And it was just like, I felt off. And so then it was a real realization. I'm like, wait a minute, you know, you're really personally against going to the ski area on pin bindings. But ultimately, uh, even though I've been adamant that that is dangerous, something you shouldn't do, that's going to be safer for me in the long run to get time spent on short, steep pitches. And, you know, I talk about drawing to, to gain confidence. You draw from prior experience and you look back like, you know, when I when I ski the crack, you you, you think about all the coolars you've straight lined, whether they're a tenth in length, but you kind of build on those experiences. And so for me, it's like, wait, I should build those experiences by going to the ski area on lightweight setup. Um, I have yet to go out there with a heavy pack, but that's probably coming up next. Oh God, that's, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Well, and honestly, that stuff all makes sense. And and the, the post you put up today, I'm not mad at that at all. And I think, again, what we have tried to stress over the years at Blister is make sure you are clear about the compromises you are making and with what you're talking about, you're using a ski resort as a training grounds. 
to ultimately put you in a more safe experience in even more consequential terrain and situations. And so, yeah, I mean, I was giving you grief, obviously, but I think that makes perfect sense. What I'm still worried about is the person heading to Breckenridge on their sick, lightweight, you know, tech setup, tech binding, and they think it's fine to just ski that stuff normal, right? And that's the opposite of what you're talking about. Totally. And that's what I've tried to reiterate. I think when we did a gear 30 pod, when I did in a, a video, it's just to be like, like we know they have limitations and you just got to know it that you're taking additional risk. You're taking compromise. You might have to adjust the way you ski. And for me, I also think about even the gear itself. Like for me, if like, if I don't know how many days I'm going to get on like this setup in particular, but I do know having the luxury of being sponsored, I'm not going to bring those bindings up to me with me to St. Elias because I'm going to be putting so much stress on them. So if I'm getting like 20 days at the ski hill of doing this and you're banging out lap after lap after lap, you're putting a lot of stress on a lot of very, very small pieces, small pieces of metal pins themselves are tiny. Um, you know, the little springs that are in there. So to me, you're like, I'm going to retire those bindings for anything of consequence. And I think people have to know that as well, that you are putting additional stress on your gear that eventually wears it out. Um, you know, I get I get some emails here and there and be like, hey, I've got some play in my Solomon MTN bindings. Uh, they, I bought them five years ago. I ski, you know, 60 days a year in the backcountry. And to me, I, I very flat out tell them, I'm like, well, it's time to get new ones. I'm sorry. Like, I wish pin bindings could last longer than that, but that's like kind of the maximum you want to get out of them. Um, I learned that actually from Andreas Fronson early on. He was reiterating how like when he's skiing the stuff that he would ski, which was ultra exposed, super gnarly, that he would only do one year on pin bindings before switching them out. I mean, your life depends on these tiny little pieces of metal. So, so ultimately, you just want to like reiterate that like not only you're putting additional risk on your own lower extremities by skiing pin bindings at a ski area, you're also putting additional stresses on the gear itself. You kind of blew my mind with the whole like super heavy pack in the ski area. That just sounds like a degree of that's like the eighth circle of hell or something like that. But I, I'm glad that you will be doing that, not me. Yeah, I don't know why, but I kind of relish sometimes little challenges like that. And I think that's what's so rad about skiing. Like, yeah, like I actually had fun that day just trying to like, you know, feel precise on every single one of my turns and try and do little turns over exposure and make your really pinpoint turns on that. And then to do with a heavy pack, you're just like going to amplify that challenge. You know, I think that's what's fun about skiing. Um, you can just kind of take it in so many unique ways. Like our definition of fun isn't all just perfect powder, even though that is really fun. There's so many other different ways to have fun uh, on a pair of skis. True story. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's review the news. Let's review the news, but but maybe not so much the news to start here because we wanted to talk about, well, a couple of things. I guess, broadly speaking, alpinism movies and also maybe the corresponding topic of obsession. And we mentioned this to you all. I guess we did that last month on last month's reviewing the news podcast. And so 
We gave you a heads up. We said we were going to be talking about some climbing and alpinism films. So I guess there might be some spoiler alerts here. Yeah, I mean, the thing with spoiler alert in these movies is if you pay attention to anything in the mountaineering world, you know exactly what has happened with someone like Marc-Andre Leclerc and with Nims, um, Nims Die. So, I, you know, it's not quite a spoiler. You still like that's a good thing with documentaries like, you know, Everyone hopefully knew that Alex Honnold didn't die in Free Solo, but you still got really sweaty palms and loved that movie. So, so you know, that's a good thing with documentaries. All right. Well, people, I was going to try to be nice and provide a spoiler alert and Cody just steamrolled that entire idea. So blame him. And we're going to have a fully spoilered conversation about some of these films. So this is what we said. Basically, at the time... I had just seen The Alpinist, this film about Marc-Andre Leclerc, this film about Nims Persia, 14 Peaks. This was also coming out. So we had these two really kind of significant films in climbing and big mountain alpinism coming out. And it got me thinking about, and Cody and I were texting about sort of some of the greatest films in this genre and um, I don't know, how do you want to do this? Do you want to start by talking about, say, The Alpinist or 14 Peaks? Or do you want to kind of do our top five thing? How do you want to do this? Let's, I mean, let's talk about those two movies um, first, because I think overall, it is pretty interesting that those two movies came out to a wide audience being on Netflix and a lot, number of streaming platforms um, uh, alongside just a few years ago when Free Solo and The Dawnwall came out to almost together. Um, and it feels like, you know, we're talking about like a trend where it almost seems like these outdoor adventure climbing alpinism movies are having a little bit of a golden age. Um, you know, I kind of started to look back in history and like, when was there some other climbing films? And the only ones I could actually think of were the fictional ones like Cliffhanger and Vertical Limit, which came out. Um, and don't discount those movies, though. Don't discount cheesy Hollywood adventure films, because honestly, I've read too many stories of like one of the better climbers, skiers, whatever in the world, watching one of those movies for their first time and getting inspired by that. So like, yeah, like there's, you know, if it was, if you moved from Arizona to the North Shore, cause you watched North Shore, even though it was a cheesy movie, like maybe they still have value. So, but, but when it comes to like these documentary forms, I definitely think we have like uh, a little bit of a moment and you're seeing like major media types talking about these films. Um, so like the Alpinist and 14 Peaks, um, the Alpinist documents the story of free soloist and Alpinist um, Marc-Andre Leclerc. And then 14 Peaks, which uh, documents Nimsdai Persia who, and his uh, attempt and to climb all of the 14, 8,000 meter peaks in the fastest time possible in seven months when the fastest before that was seven years. So um, those two movies just came out and I think there's been a little bit of a buzz and uh, it was interesting comparing both of them. And I do think they actually have a lot of comparisons to other climbing films. So we can kind of talk maybe about them specifically and then compare them with some of the top five. Um, I don't know. Which one did you like more? I was all in on The Alpinist. I, I thought it was just absolutely riveting for so many different reasons. I thought it was very sad. And I want to talk about some of this. 
it is freaking shocking and exceptional. And one of the things that I think is an amazing part of the movie is Alex Honnold is a big part of the film. Alex is talking a lot about Marc Andre. And in one of the wildest cinematic moves that you'll ever see, you'll start slipping into this notion that Alex Honnold is like your average Joe. Because the way he's talking about what Marc Andre was out there doing, it's like if I was sitting there talking about what Marc Andre is doing. And you kind of have to, you almost forget, like, wait a minute, that's the dude from Free Solo. And he's going, this guy's doing unprecedented stuff. It's super beyond gnarly. And this guy's kind of nuts in his own way. Yeah, um, yep. and he, That's like Alex Honnold <laughs> saying that, who the general populace thinks is probably right. one of the craziest people in the world. Yeah. And, and has pulled off one of the most, I mean, now switching gears to free solo. I mean, what Honnold did was pull off one of the most world historically epic feats of, say, athleticism. Like, Homer should come back to life. This is absolutely Homeric, right? It's as simple as it gets. Guy without equipment climbs up this wall, right? It's, it is unfathomable what Honold does and how well it's documented and captured in Free Solo, right? And while I think Free Solo is the greater cinematic accomplishment, it's the greater, right, it's the greater piece of cinema, Hearing Honnold talk about what Marc Andre is doing is just somehow, I don't know what to say, next level. Yeah. What I found really interesting, and this brings up a lot of the, the free soloists and some of the ethics and ideals of climbing. So in The Alpinist, it's really, really hammered that Marc-Andre Lecoeur lives by a set of values. And his values when it comes to soloing are very, very explicit. Um, he does not go out there with a phone, any sort of satellite communication device. And he goes out there solo and he on-sites, meaning he doesn't do any scouting beforehand and just goes and sends. Um, and that is imposed as this very, very high ideal. I started thinking about a lot of the other soloists out there in the world, including Alex um, and Marc Andre. Um, Brad Gobright is a is a modern one, and a, and a few others. And what was really fascinating to me was thinking like they're actually all kind of socially awkward. Like they all, to me, have a tick of some sort of way that makes it so that these solo adventures are truly like the greatest thing in the world for them. And I think it takes that kind of person to do that because personally that ideal that Marc Andre lived by is not an ideal that brings me enjoyment. Like personally, like I look at the camaraderie and the sense of celebration that I got from the team on Mount St. Elias and going through that shared experience and essentially the jokes and the like inside jokes that and the communication and the way we talk between the team after that adventure and the desire to go back. 
as so damn valuable as something that I get to live with for the rest of my life of like, you have this shared experience with a small team. So to me, and like humans in general, we're very social creatures. So to do something solo and to do something in the way that they're kind of doing it almost seems to me, it's like, it's different than a lot of us, the way we're wired. Um, and I see a parallel between a lot of these guys, like Brad Gobright, unfortunately passed away, not soloing, but um, in a climbing accident. And he definitely was a little awkward socially. Alex is definitely self-described that. I remember Jimmy always calling him Spock because um, <laughs> he was most closely resembled Spock from Star Trek. Um, but I also think he's pretty well adjusted. But then Mark Andre and the Alpin, as you can tell, like he, I don't know, has social anxiety, has weird quirks, is definitely doesn't want to be in front of the camera, all these kind of things where he is truly living by for his own sense of adventure. And it was a really interesting parallel. And I'd be, uh, I think it's an astute observation, but I, I don't know if it hundred percent is if I'm trying to draw a red line between all these and there's not one there. Hmm. Well, and I, I made this note in this sort of doc that you and I share, and we kind of are always dumping stuff into it, you know, over the course of some weeks till our next reviewing the news conversation. But um, I just wrote, I am a sucker for anybody pretty much who operates by way of a self-imposed ethic. I think Mark Andre is a perfect example of, of that. And so I will watch a film about anything if we're seeing this clearly defined or this person that's living by a clear code then when you pair that with the really remarkable solo feats of mixed ice climbing and the rest i mean it's just all kind of next level but you know it it did also and i made this note to you it just got me thinking more and more about like obsession and I think if I just got done saying I, I really am fascinated by people who live by a well-defined code, I think I probably have a thing for really obsessed people too. And you see that in The Alpinist. You maybe see that in Free Solo. You get a sense of that in Nims's 14 Peaks. But, um, you know, there is a thing very much worth thinking about is if I'm obsessed with a particular objective or project, what happens when there are people in our lives who we love or they love us? And in the case of Marc-Andre, he, for being the self-described super awkward guy, he had found a relationship that brought him a ton of joy and he died. And so there was a loss and he, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to stop for a second. I think people maybe get the gist, mm -hmm. but what do we do if we say we're, if we say it's so compelling, you live by this code, you're obsessed and we want to root for obsessed, single-minded people, but there's part of me that absolutely wishes Marc Andre was still back living in the forest in a tent with his girl. Yeah. Well, it brings me to 
I remember hearing this quote once and it was talking about like the greatest sports players of all time. And it literally was talking about adultery and the greatest athletes of all time and saying adultery is batting 1000%. And it just all of a sudden this article went into this whole thing about the greatest athletes of all time are very socially maladjusted. In order to do what you have to do to train, focus, and obsess over winning and winning at all costs, the the side effect that is that you don't really get along with people, that you are really awkward, that you have some tick inside of you that drives your acceptance in life through the through conquering and winning. Uh, and, you know, this is obviously different because of in climbing, it's more of an experiential thing as a, as Mark Andre says in the Alpinist so often. And I think it, you know, Alex and all these guys, it is driven by the experience, not necessarily the conquest, but for a lot of pl- people like Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, you know, the Babe Ruth, so the, all these greatest of all time, you're like, you really have to be a quirky person when it comes to your like your acceptance in society and your will willingness to get along with people. You know, I, I, I think I've referenced this in prior podcasts. So to me, like what I see is that in order to be great at something, you have to be so obsessed that you're willing to sacrifice almost all other things in your life. Um, and that means even something that brings you joy, like a relationship, ignoring that to do what you continue to do like sure that is a part of your life but it is a very significant number two like down low compared to your number one obsession um i mean you kind of see that in the relationship in in free solo with alex and 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 sonny that's like one of the things i thought was so brilliant about that film was bringing this like human story and kind of trying to really show it um ultimately and we come back to kind of the 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 golden age of films of, of alpinism documentaries and whatnot. Like the alpinist I thought was really good. I thought the, the section where they just shut off all the music when he was doing that mix climb yes. overhanging yes. and just like five minutes of nothing, I thought was one of the most brilliant things in a film. Just like suck you into the moment. Um, no words. Um, and you know, the 14 peaks has some of those moments as well, where you just, you realize like this guy, one is a superhuman athlete two he's ridiculously obsessed and three, his ethics I thought were unbelievable when it came to rescuing people in the mountains while this happened. But ultimately both of those films, Alpinist and, um, and 14 peaks left me a little lacking, um, for the reason that it was really hard to show their human side, both because 14 Peaks, I think, was almost kind of it felt like it was shot after the fact, not during it, not like chasing this person around. It was like kind of a lot of just like a couple handheld shots from up on the mountain. Um, it didn't feel like it was planned out. So it's really hard to execute a film without like going in like we're going to chase every moment for the next seven months of this guy. Um it was a great film in many ways, but I also felt it was lacking. The Alpinist too, but I think it was lacking because Marc Andre's character was that I don't want to say everything in front of the camera and I'm going to disappear for months on end. It was just the challenge of shooting a character. Um, to me, like that's where I see some of the greatest films. Like my favorite 
climbing movie of all time is Valley Uprising, which was done by Sender Films, which did The Alpinist. And it just shows such a cool side of the sport, these human stories of of rebellion, of of conquest, of like being just such counterculture to everything and developing this culture in in Yosemite and developing climbing. And then Free Solo and Maru and the Eamon Donwell, they have a really good, they did a really good job of the human side of it. Um, you know, Maru really showed some of the human stories of Conrad, of Renan, and of Jimmy, of really bringing in not only just the the challenge of the mountain, but the challenge inside themselves with their families and everything. So, um, you know, that was, that was my only critique of those two films. It was, it was missing kind of the human element a little bit, but still, still great films. And then I, I, I listed my fifth. That was, that was my top four as 180 South. But I think, you know, that's a climbing film, but it also is just really inspirational in that type of like, you just go on a really cool adventure with your friends, um, which again goes to kind of my, ethics in the mountains that like, yeah, I do solo ski touring days. I, I love it. Um, I like being out there sometimes by myself, but if I'm going through a really crazy experience, like I kind of like to do it with people. I like to do it with friends because it's, uh, you know, we, we put value on it solo, but I also think like we don't put enough value on the fact that going out there with your team can be so bonding and create these lifelong partnerships and friendships that endure because you went through this shared, really cool shared experience. Just to follow up a couple of things. One, I have to admit when I finally sat down and watched 14 Peaks, I was really surprised because so much of the marketing that I had seen about the film, to be very frank, and maybe I was just catching random weird, um, you know, clips and missing other stuff from the promotional. Nims honestly came off like I'm the baddest man alive. And it was a bit about this is all about me. And like, that is not what was conveyed, maybe, I don't know, maybe especially in sort of the first half of the film. I mean, they're talking about their brotherhood. He's, you know, kissing people, you know, on mountains. And I I was like, wow, this, the way the film was positioned and marketed and the way he was, again, unless I missed some of the other like clips and trailers or something, I liked him, frankly, a lot more than I got from the promotionals. I think there is a talk in the climbing world of him being a bit brash, a bit boisterous and whatnot. And so people will kind of, uh, he doesn't have the ethic of the, the humble British climber, you know? And so, which is ironic to me because you're like, also like one of the most brash climbers of all time is one of the most celebrated in Reinhold Mesner. Um, but you're kind of hating on this guy. And I honestly think like he does have a little bit of that attitude to me, but I, I'm not necessarily going to judge him for that because of his place and what he's trying to do. And it's kind of to me how he's had to get attention for this. Like it goes through the struggle of him even getting this funded people believing in him. Um, and I agree it came off as far, far more of a brotherhood and then also to me like he broke almost the number one ethic in climbing which was like 
get to the summit at all costs and get off and preserve your own life by literally putting himself in additional danger while on this mission to rescue two people, um, you know, try to at least two people. He definitely saved one person's life the day after a summit, which is incredible to me. Like people don't do that. You cannot go to 8,000 meters and then go back the very next day and expect to come out of their alive. So that to me was like one of the more mind blowing things. Like we hear the stories on Everest of people walking over bodies that are like not, you know, half alive. And they've been like, well, bummer for that guy. But like Nims is like, no, we're going to do everything we can to save this person's life. And I thought that was really, really amazing. Um, you, you, just to set that precedent. I think it hopefully showed people be like, yeah, no, you can rescue him. You might be like, you're going to put yourself at risk, but do it. Um, I thought that was that was a pretty special part of that movie. Last thing I kind of want to say is, as we were we were thinking through a bit of our sort of top five, and where where I'm at on this, like you, I have Valley Uprising 1 and Free Solo 2. And then, honestly, 3 through 5, I think those are going to change and shift around for me, maybe, depending on the day. I really appreciated The Alpinist. I really liked 14 Peaks. I think Meru and the Dawn Wall. I'm out on Cliffhanger. You've been trying to convince me for a month that Cliffhanger should be in there. I'm out. But... I just as a chance to shout out Valley Uprising again, I mean, what's amazing about it and why it's probably not able to ever be displaced is it is the documenting of a new culture. It's almost like it's a film of like, say, the Mormon church. You know what I mean? It's like, this is this thing that got birthed into the world. And these are the nutsos who made it happen. And I think it's so seminal that I don't know that it ever can be dislodged. And then though, as another major compliment, what was done in Free Solo? And I like that we're talking about this again, because it, you know, it's been out for, what is it? It's two years now? Yeah, it's been a couple, at least three years. Oh no, it was two thousand. It was two thousand eighteen or nineteen because I skied with Jimmy right after he did the whole Oscar promotion thing. So, Got so it's it. been yeah, like almost four years now. Like that thing is just, I think, going down is forever timeless. You know what I mean? And and again, I, I think in part for me when I was talking about it's Homeric, it's epic. It is so simple and singular in a way. Some of the best epic timeless stories are and it is so beautifully done and it's still one of the wildest i mentioned that the Al- the trick of the alpinist was you kind of sometimes could slip into the idea that alex honnold was like this ordinary person the way that he's talking and narrating you know what mark andre was up to the craziest feat i think i've ever had in a movie theater is that I was terrified that Honold was going to die <laughs> watching the film. And I knew he was alive. Don't and I kept, I was so scared. And I kept telling myself like, dude, he's alive. You know that. And it didn't matter. And I was like, I don't know what kind of black magic that is, but Jimmy and Alex and the crew pulled that off. And I, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, you know, special effects, or whatever in Star Wars movies, I guess that's impressive. But how on earth do you have an entire theater of people terrified, but we all know that Alex is alive? I don't know. 
I know. I was, my hands like were sweating and I'm like, I know <laughs> yes. he lives. I know he lives. I know he lives. But you're like, but what if he doesn't? And you're like, dude, he like posted yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I texted with him <laughs> and you're like, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it is like, I mean, there hasn't been a horror movie that is as scary as that, you know, like it would truly, you're like, oh my God, are we going to watch someone die live? in this film and you're like no they don't they don't they don't they made he made it he made it i know he made it but you're like but still so yeah it truly is one of the greatest ever i definitely uh sought it out to go to a theater with uh, with elise and yeah i remember just being like wow that was incredible it deserved an oscar yeah absolutely now i feel like i i need to make a confession here most of the time when i'm watching 50 project episodes I'm just shaking my head at you and being like, what a dumbass!" or I'm laughing. Yep. And so I'm sorry that I don't have that. It's not quite the same level of concern somehow. And I feel bad. Well, I mean, in all honesty, I hope I'm not putting myself in those situations. I mean, the closest was St. Elias, but we also like talk every month. So, you know, I get back fine too. So, and I'm, you know, I'm not an Oscar award-winning filmmaker like Jimmy Chan and Shiva Vassarelli. I, I direct a YouTube series. I'm a glorified vlogger. So... <laughs> Well, okay, okay, okay. We didn't really talk about Summit Fever, actually. We're talking, apparently we're talking yeah. about films now. Totally. And uh, I actually felt bad about this. When we recorded our last conversation, I had watched the your previous episode. I hadn't yet seen Summit Fever. And so I was like, that film had just come out on the podcast. I'm talking about like, you like sleeping in cold weather, like way cold weather. And I was like, People who listened to our last conversation must have been like, how come Ellsworth's not asking him like, so Elias, that looks scary as hell. Yeah, totally. And, and <laughs> Sorry, you, people. You didn't ask me about sleeping in a flooded tent for six days and like sleeping when you're just soaked to the bone on a beach in Alaska. I mean, that was more just comical more than anything. But yeah, no, it, it got a little close. I kind of, I've explained out there, like we're not able to show exactly every little detail that got us into that situation. It just doesn't make for good films sometimes. But yeah, um, it was an unfortunate series of events, a little little small decisions and things that were out of our control. And then skiing down, you know, that's the, the one of the things that you, when you're on these mountains that don't have much prior history, there's not things written about it. There's no like trade route up it. Um, nobody knows how many times people have summited. Nobody knows how many people have been on that mountain um when you're skiing a mountain like that and you're going down faces that have you never scouted and you've never skied before or heard any beta about you get yourself into those situations and you got to work fast to get yourself out of them um so it was one of those things where you're like yeah it's just sometimes the risk you end up having to take on a mountain like mount saint elias um and uh, uh, we fortunately got ourselves out of it and it was a little bit of a too close of a call for my comfort but you know, um, we're, we're here and we live from, we learned from it and we're adjusting our tactics to go for round two this, uh, this next time. Maybe you should bring me and I'll just like put on some 10 pound ski boots. Yes. And then, um, I won't get off the beach and just be like, you guys go ahead. I'm pretty, I'm pretty tired after this quarter mile in my 10 pound ski boots. So exactly. I'll just be here, you know, I'll just be here when you get back. Sounds great. Yeah, okay. you can be our, uh, I don't know, you can be our weather scouter 
you know, okay. from the beach, be like, looks like there's some clouds up there. We'll be on this on a ridgeline getting blown off, trying to be like, yeah, we're in it. <laughs> Mostly, I'm just going to be waiting at the bottom with plenty of reading material for Nick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did. We I, I listened to that podcast. I did definitely got thrown under the bus a little bit. Yeah, the one thing did. I will say, I, I, I feel bad for it, but also like. Dude, you didn't bring a book. That's not my yeah. problem. <laughs> so, yeah. like, a okay. little bit of like, you yeah. know, there is a little bit of that there too. So, um, but I, I mean, I, I get, I, I probably should have read to him a little bit, but I was also like in the middle of a weird book, and I don't know, feels weird. You're like, you're just gonna come in. Granted, we were just seeking for any form of entertainment at that point. I, I did read two books in one day. <laughs> That's how. Yeah, that was a first. But, anyways, let's get back to. Or, okay. I guess the news. we can we can move move on from from movies and whatnot. Move into the next thing, which yeah. was um, a pretty fascinating podcast that yeah. I, I think we both listened to from uh, the Storm Skiing Journal and an interview with Rob Katz. Um, which, uh, yeah, I don't know about you. Was that the first time you've ever kind of heard anything from Rob or seen many interviews with him? I feel like maybe I saw, I think it was a video, a pretty short thing with him. I'd heard him talk a bit before. Maybe it was a talk he had given actually at Park City, come to think of it. And I watched a bit. I was just like, who is this guy? Like, let me see a bit what he's about. And so for those who don't know, Rob Katz had been the CEO of Vail Resorts for, I don't know, feels like roughly forever. I think he says in this storm skiing podcast that he had been in some form or another sort of, you know, working with Vale for, forgive me if I get this wrong, you should all listen, we'll link to the episode, listen to it for yourselves. But I think he's been there for, let's just say, more than a couple decades. Like he's put his time in. Yeah, he started as like a Wall Street investor, um, working in a financier, and then his group, uh, you know, invested in Vail Resorts, he got on the board, and then he eventually took a CEO role. So um, I would almost argue that he is one of the most influential people in this in skiing's history. Um, and this story and his life story and the questions were were pretty fascinating, I thought. Um, you know, he definitely comes off as a CEO. A lot of CEOs speak, but there was some interesting insight in there. Um, I thought Stuart, the interviewer, did a really, really good job. Um, you know, some would maybe say, like, why didn't you push back as hard as you could on certain things that I thought were a little bit maybe wishy-washy from him. Um, but ultimately, like a journalist actually tends to shoot themselves in the foot when they start to push back that hard. Um, so you have to kind of speak, let the questions go and then move on and let the let the audience try to decide for themselves. Um, and he, he does a good job of that, I thought. Yeah. And I, I want to jump in here because these are tricky dynamics, right? I mean, I, I do multiple podcasts a week. I talk to a lot of people. I was very curious, both on the side of the questioner, in this case, Stuart, I think we are a lot of us are quite aware of some of the issues that Vale has had, you know, this season and last. You and I have talked about some of these things quite a lot in these reviewing the news conversations. I really think Stuart did a very good job in terms of leading the conversation. I also have to say, I thought Rob 
was quite impressive. Like mm-hmm. in terms of the answers he gave, in terms of the level of candor, like you said, I mean, this is, uh, he was the CEO of Vail. He's now, I believe, on the board. Yeah, he might even be chair of the board. I'm not entirely sure, but it seems like he's still involved with the board. So uh, making large decisions within the company, but not the day-to-day decisions. We have actually maybe talked about this too in some of our past conversations, but I really value conversations between two people or multiple people where tough questions can get asked, thoughtful answers can be given, follow-up questions can be asked, but it wasn't this antagonistic. It wasn't like watching Fox News or, or, or frankly, CNBC or whatever the hell. I, I, don't, I can't watch those, right? Where it's like guest comes on, my job is I'm just going to blow them full of holes and then sort of declare victory at the end. Like, I'm not interested in that. No, that's not the way you do journalism. It's, it really isn't. And as much as people desire that to, in watching it, it's like also like you got to be smart yourself educate yourself when it comes to it. And, you know, I did think Rob did a, a decent job um, and Stuart did a good, decent job of, of, you know, building up the interview. And I kind of wanted to go through like what I thought was the good, the bad and the ugly from the interview. Like to me, the first thing was the, the, the best part of the interview was kind of the illustration of why the cheap pass price model was important for skiing. And Rob did a really good job of not only, you know, explaining the business sense, which is obvious for when it comes to a revenue, but mainly the cash flow and the risk, um, shifting some of the risk off the ski areas and onto the consumers, while also then taking away the risk from employees, Um, you know, illustrating the fact that on a down snow year, laying off half your workforce or furloughing half your workforce is really terrible for a a lot of people. While if you can get your money up front, you know how many people you can afford. And regardless of the snow season, we can operate. Um, so to me, like that was a really interesting illustration. One that I've sort of thought about, but not as in depth as he kind of put it, that really, really actually for the the sustainability of the business itself and the sustainability of employees, that was an important step in skiing and why we've seen it replicated so, so much since then. So to me, I thought that was one of the best illustrations of why this wasn't just like a pure greedy motive that people would definitely think from the outside that there was some sustainability, a little bit of altruism with keeping resorts, you know, uh, employees on the payroll and, you know, keeping them operational. Yeah. And if I may, I have had private conversations with multiple owners of independent ski areas where they have admitted one bad snow year and we're done. That's a very, just just to underscore what you've been saying, in case anybody's still listening to this thinking like, whatever. That pretty much happened to Kirkwood. Yep. Yep. And so like, we need to understand, and this frankly, slight tangent This is why, like, I don't love the whole meme culture of just murdering ski areas when it's like, you know what? Some of these issues actually are complex and it is easy to come guns blazing at just about anything. And I, I, what I appreciate about this conversation is that anybody at least that's willing to listen, there will be, I think, more 
legitimate nuance that will come. And so like, I don't need to defend Vale. That's not like, you know, but I'm just saying like, again, I thought it was a good conversation and we're going to get to some of the, uh, the rest of it, but it was a good conversation where I think Rob did a very good job of articulating an extremely real and significant element of why these passes actually are a really significant, well, insurance, piece of insurance for ski areas and seasonal workers and the rest. So also my, my defense of the high day rate, the high day lift ticket pass, which I have defended on this show with you, I thought he gave a really articulate defense of that as well it's right i mean along these same lines except for what i'm about to go into which i thought was the worst answer that he gave in this um which that he equated cheap pass prices to increasing diversity within the sport and i thought that was a pretty blatant lie and I'll call it a blatant lie because of the fact that we've gone over it. The publicly available NSA data that shows over the last 10 years, diversity within ski areas has not increased, um, whether that's diversity of of income, uh, race, class, gender, it, it really hasn't gone up. So you can't equate a decade plus of cheap passes to increasing diversity. Plus, the most logical thing is too, like, if I want to take up golf and learn how to play golf, I don't start by buying a country club membership, even if it's like only $800. Um, you know, like there's a golf course, Muni golf course here. The the unlimited golf is 500 bucks. I would not go by starting to play golf by buying a $500 pass. You know, I'm going to see and check it out. So that's the downside. Like I get the upside of creating an incentive to buy your pass and buy a pass early and a $200 lift ticket gives you that incentive, but it also does not help get new people into the sport. You have to be pretty committed at that point to get into the sport. You have to have enough financial comfort in your own life to be like, you know what? I kind of want to ski more this year. I'm going to drop $800, $1,000 or, you know, more than that, $4,000 for my family to be going up there. So that's the one thing I didn't like out of it. And he definitely tried to equate it. I think they are doing some decent things when it comes to DI issues. And it, he illustrated that and he seemed passionate about that. But equating cheap pass prices to increasing diversity, like he had to have read the same NSA report that we did um, and has seen those year to year. That was the like the worst answer to me. I thought that was pretty unfair yeah i don't know if i have something to say on that one yeah no there's i mean that's just kind of my thoughts to it and i think it's a little it is a little obvious i think there has to be other ways to get newcomers into the sport and to me that that's where like you you do have to create very very incentivized systems to create get new people into the sport and certainly but and this i think will segue us into another thing i know you wanted to talk about Certainly just making stuff inexpensive, like let's use stick to golf. Like I don't golf. I'm not interested in it. If somebody told me, well, here's a pass for a free day of golf, I'm not going, right? Like that's going to be a thing where if some friends want to do it, you know, or some, but like price itself isn't like, I don't sit around like I don't golf, 
But if I could only go do it for really cheap, then I would. It's like, I'm busy doing all this other stuff I love or have to do, right? Well, that's why I think the culture side of it comes in. And that's where I think where you have to, you also have to invest in marketing the culture of it. And I actually think that's where they've done a very poor job um, because Vail doesn't support athletes, marketing projects, things that create the culture. Like to me, back to the films, I had this debate um, in a talk with Andrew Bisharat, um, Bisharat, Bisharat, I, sorry, buddy. Um, I always uh, mispronounce your name. Um, But uh, we had a debate about climbing in the Olympics and I talked to him about how Valley Uprising was actually how I decided I'm like, I got to get into climbing. This culture seems really cool. And ski movies generally do that for a lot of people. We've talked about it here, how ski movies build that culture. And so like, to me, like, yes, what you're saying is just being cheap isn't going to necessarily be the ticket to it, but investing in the promotion of this culture is important. Um, and that's where I've seen Vail like cut marketing budgets, cut all their athletes, cut like any sort of marketing projects not invest in it. Altera actually has. They've done more independent films. They'll put out short edits. They do some stuff to, uh, you know, market that this is a rad place to be. Like you want to be here. You don't miss this. This is a cool, fun sport with a great culture. So that's where I would knock them is that also they're just not investing in the sport. That I agree with you. Yeah. So that part, you're wrong on the first part. But you're right on the second part. So totally. well done. No, and well done. You're, you're right too. That just being inexpensive isn't necessarily always the best avenue to get into it. Um, you either have to have friends or be incentivized by like, hey, that looks like a rad sport I want to be involved with for because I saw a movie, I saw a magazine, I saw read a story, something like that. Now, this brings us to an interesting topic. And we're still talking about culture. Jerry of the day. You brought this up and you, so let's, I'm just giving you the floor. Rob, Rob brought up Jerry the day and. Rob brought up Jerry as a day as something that was very negative in the sport for creating inclusivity with it. And while I have almost a both sides take, like, yes, we do have to create you know, where if you show up to the ski resort and your helmet's on backwards, we're not just making fun of you and blasting it out to a million people. Like, that's kind of dickish. Um, but at the same time, like, jokes, man. It's just jokes. And, like, I'm not too worried about a Instagram account killing inclusivity within the sport. Like, we can do things that makes it welcoming while also poking fun at ourselves. Like, I know plenty of professional skiers that are on Jerry of the right. Day. And it's just right. like, like, we'll submit to it. And so there's something like, you're like, yeah, we're just kind of trying to have a laugh here, man. Like, I grew up in a valley with people that was surrounded by poking fun of yourself and at things within the sport. So I'm also like, you know, come on, don't like... There's a lot of other problems we have to deal with, like housing and traffic and and climate change before we're worried about an Instagram account. But I do agree with him. Like there is some notion to be like, we should be, we got to be careful. Don't just purely go out there and make fun of kooks. Um, it's one of the reasons why surfing can be so hard to get into because it is a culture where you are very, very looked down upon very quickly if you paddle out to the wrong spot and aren't, don't look the part. Yeah. So now I'm, inviting people into the back and forth that you and I have. Because when you first put this in, 
you were like, this is complete bullshit that he's trying to like assign any kind of blame to Jerry of the day. And I, I wrote back to you. It's like, I don't know. I'm maybe more sympathetic with Rob's take on this. And, and I said to you, I was like, I actually have a take on this of why I think you were so at you yourself mm-hmm. and you kind of just explained it. Like why you were like, screw that. Don't put the blame on an Instagram account. But I, I do actually think the culture of making fun of people that don't get it. I think that is, and can be really damaging, really damaging, but And as I've thought more about this, I think the real danger is when we think of ourselves on the not Jerry side, right? We're over here and making fun of everybody else. What you just said was when we realize and get that we're all Jerry's, then it can just be this culture of we get to just make jokes and we all screw up and do stupid things and right. And like shove a ski tip under a mogul and go flying. And like, that's part of it. And I, I think like, I mean, you know, full disclosure back when I thought you were just a goofball, it's like, well, yeah, he came up in squaw with Shane McConkie who set this whole thing of like, we have to be able to, you know, not we have to, but we ought to be joking about ourselves and being goofy and the rest. And I think, I think because you came up in that culture of like, that was the way to do this. Of course, you're like, cat, stop talking about Jerry of the day. I think the problem is, is when people, usually insecure people, want to start making fun of other people that clearly are newer to the sport or whatever. And I don't think that's been ever your deal. And I think in the culture you grew up around, it makes sense. You, to you, it's like, if you're actually really into this, you are one of the goofballs. Well, I actually found that culture very inclusive. Like that's what got me into the sport. And, you know, I grew up on the ocean, but going to the mountains, I grew up surfing and I grew up skiing and there couldn't have been a two differing cultures than skiing and surfing. Like surfing was hyper alpha male, hyper masculine, very alpha, like who's the, the silver back in the lineup and you do not talk to him. You do not fuck with him. He can do anything he wants to you. And there's this like distinct hierarchy in the lineup. Um, it was very serious and it was gnarly and there was fights left and right. People like trying to drown people, like throwing rocks at them, breaking boards. It was gnarly. And then I was like watching Shane McConkey and he was like, wow, he's just funny and fun and making fun of himself and everything. And this sport looks so fun to be a part of. He looked welcoming because he was able to make fun of himself that to me, you're like, well, you're not, you're not too serious for me to walk up to you and say hi to you. And you'd be like, Hey dude, what's up? Like, just be friendly. So that's where I do push back a little bit on it because I found humor to be inclusive. Like I found that, um, you know, again, I think you have to be careful with it and you got to make sure to make fun of yourselves. Um, I know Jerry of the day does 
particularly get permission from every single person from the video to put out. And I've heard him say that as such as being like, no, we're, uh, uh, you know, we're being very explicit that we're not trying to just steal footage from the person that's in the subject of this and just make fun of them. Like they're getting permission from them. So that's a good thing. But, uh, yeah, so that was where I was like a little bit like, oh, come on. There's a lot of other issues besides Jerry of the day. Yeah. Can I bring us back around to one thing that Stuart and Rob did not talk about? Stuart didn't really ask him about this. And honestly, this is still one of my biggest questions in terms of Vale's management style. And we have talked about this on previous episodes, but I would have liked to have heard the question about Vale's very centralized management style. And I don't know that Rob would have been able to say a whole lot on that, but I have lots of conversations around the ski industry and I feel very comfortable in saying Vail has an extremely centralized management model. And I think that some of the problems that we've seen can stem back to that system of management. It's one of the things I'd most like to see change at Vail. And Rob said, you know, Rob said multiple times, we are not perfect. We know we need to do better. And he expressed a sincere interest, it seemed, in doing better. To me, it would seem changing that, valuing local knowledge and local expertise, not driving out or firing some of the local knowledge or expertise would absolutely help manage all of these different ski areas in all of these different parts of the country and the world. And I would love to hear an honest answer about why, if they think that currently this is the optimal way to be running things, why they think that, because it, I'm not seeing it. I don't think it's working. And I think they're potentially going through a little bit of a reckoning with it because that's the direct comparison you have between Stevens Pass and Crystal. Um, you know, not obviously perfect analogies, but pretty close. And you're seeing massive issues at Stevens Pass um, with, a, you know, centralized from Broomfield management style, whereas Altera came in specifically with, you know, we're going to create a pass price, a group, all these the, a similar business model, but we're going to leave everyone in place. We're going to leave autonomy to ski resorts and Crystal was 100% open and Stevens was 60% open. So I think they might be going through that reckoning. And I don't know if they're going to be willing to change their entire business model and bring those people back. I know, you know, when Vail bought Whistler, I had a lot of friends that were working with Whistler, working with the marketing. They were constantly winning marketing awards, doing what people thought was some of the best job in the world when it came to marketing. And they really you know, transformed from like a pretty big ski area to like one of the marquee ones in the world in, in that time. And I watched them pretty much fire every single one of those people and put that in the hands of Vale. And the one thing I do, another egregious said, he, he said something about like Whistler being better for Vale coming in. Well, I also saw a headline in Peak News that literally said, um, there's two things Whistlerites want most gone, COVID and Vail, and not necessarily in that order. And that's like pretty damning. I think that community, you know, when you're, you're laying off, getting rid of, I don't know, 
between 20 and 50 people. That's a lot of people that have made their lives there. Um, when you pretty much got rid of every single one of their athletes, um, fired their marketing agency that was that was working in Whistler. That's an incredible marketing agency origin. Um, those kind of things have ripple effects and a really, really made that community not very happy. So I don't think they're necessarily for the better off. And I wonder if they are going to be going through a reckoning and being like, no, we got to do a little bit of, uh, you know, looking inwards and maybe placing people back in positions um, at the ski hill. I mean, it seemed like they did that with Stevens. They were like, they got rid of the GM and put a new one in. And maybe, maybe that's what they have to do. Check out that conversation. It's a good one. And it's important. I mean, this is... (laughs) Vale is obviously um, a massive, massive, massive institution in this sport of skiing that we love. So might as well um, take the time to get to hear from somebody who was remarkably responsible for shaping uh, what Vale looks like today. It's a good conversation with um, a lot of good information there. So um, may may they continue to evolve and and do better and. Um, may we continue to think through these issues and ourselves like this is my take on this is like you said cody we've got all kinds of issues in you know kind of adjacent but also integral to this sport whether that is housing issues and the rest and it's also to me really lazy if we're just like yeah Vale needs to go fix everything like they definitely need to be a part of fixing things i still think they have actually made some moves that are positives for the ski industry. We've talked about some of them at the top of this conversation, but they need to do better. We need to do better. Our towns need to do better. Like we all got a role to play here. So totally. well, jumping into the next topic, um, you know, we're kind of going through some some pretty big topics. And this was a story that just came out. Um, you know, I, we definitely talk about sing the praises of some outdoor journalists, but this one was written by probably the best journalist in the outdoors, which is John Branch for the New York Times. Um, Pulitzer Prize winner, wrote Snowfall, which was about the avalanche and Stevens Pass that my wife was in. Um, just writes amazing um, he just does amazing sports stories and really understands how to write in such an empathetic way. And I, I really love his stuff. And this article was um, uh, headlined in the New York Times as Eileen Gu is trying to soar over the pol- geopolitical divide. So as a backstory, Eileen Gu is... Um, Born and raised in uh, San Francisco. Um, she is a f- professional freestyle skier and she is pretty much the gold medal favorite in three events, um, being big air, slope style, and half pipe. Um, she's won X Games already. Um, she's 18 years old and she's an incredible talent. She also happens to be a budding model. Um, for IMG models, modeling for like luxury brands like Louis Vuitton and doing like crazy, like high end modeling stuff. Um, and she's become quite a darling of, of the sports world. Um, so this article goes into her decision at the Olympics and prior to that to compete for China, where her mo- mother is from and immigrated from and not the U.S. And the, the best quote, and you pulled this out and I, I saw it too, was um, 
her quest, pleasing the Chinese government and population while marking herself within the United States and around the world might be harder than anything she will perform on snow in Beijing. I think that sums up the article really, really well. Um, it's a really, really fascinating article. Um, I started following her just, I think, on social media within the last few months because I was like, who, you know, who is Eileen Gu? I don't know much about her. I knew she grew up skiing in Tahoe. I know I have like mutual friends, but I've never met her and I don't know, I've had, haven't had conversations about her with some of my friends. So this balancing act of competing for China for the Olympics and being born and raised in America has become very controversial. I want to state, start this conversation before we get into our takes by saying first, like, I don't want to judge an 18 year old who made a decision at 15. Like we can't totally understand her desires, her cultural upbringing. We we're not there. And she's young, and I think it's unfair to lobby a lot of, you know, the crimes of China and or even the United States on a, someone that's competing in the Olympics. Um, I think we should be supportive of her no matter what, because these are just athletes trying to do their best. So I want to start there. But also your overall take on this article. What did you, what did you walk away from it thinking? <laughs> I mean... We we talked about this previously, so I know a few of the things you want to get into. But honestly, my brain starts to shut down a bit on this, you know, so to get into all these different levels of potential critique or of interest, mostly I'm just like, I can't fathom being 18 years old and dealing with the geopolitical implications of what is going on here. I really can't. I mean, Tucker Carlson had a rant about her. That's how big this is already getting. And that's pretty like, that effing sucks. Great, Tucker. Like, great. Good, good on you. I'm proud of you there, bud. You know, one of the things that comes out in the article is, you know, Eileen's mother and she tend to be pretty private for reasons that I think I can appreciate, or at least I can appreciate some of those reasons. So given that none of us are privy to the internal conversations, let's just say between Eileen and her mother, we we could extrapolate beyond that, but like, let's just keep it there. I'm not at all tempted to come in and be like, here's my criticism of what she's doing. I think I'm mostly just rooting for her right now in the sense of like, I don't know what's going on here, but I wish you well and good luck navigating an unbelievably complex space. And I think I just can't get myself into like the mindset of like, well, this clearly just must be some financial grab. Which if it was, honestly, you're like, okay, like. A park skier has an incredibly short career. <laughs> like I look at it and I'm like, in a certain way, like you can tell she grew up wealthy. She, you know, I don't know exactly how they, they talk about her, her mother being a venture capitalist and an investor. Um, she is affluent. And, but at the same time, you're like, well, why wouldn't you take every opportunity you can during this very short window in your career? Um, we are all trying to do that as professional athletes. You're trying to maximize as much as you can make while doing something you love because it's a short career. Like I, I have my retirement age from this sport. Um, personally, I thought it was going to be a long time ago, but it still continues. But I'm still, you're like, well, 
even if I retire in the next few years, I hopefully got another 30 to 40 years of life. How are you going to support yourself? So if it is a financial grab, like I, I can understand it, you know, that we, we don't like to always see that, but we tend to critique people that are doing something like this and not like, I don't know billionaire class quite as heavily. So we, we, we judge people that are leaving normal life and middle-class life to get richer, harder than we necessarily judge the people that are already very, very, very wealthy. So um, I will say that. And so, yeah, let's say that having weighed various alternatives in the rest, this looked to make good financial sense. I think we can probably agree that that is true. But you know, call me naive, but, you know, part of this article talks about, well, one of, and I, because I do not believe there is a single reason for her choice to ski for China, to be, to represent China. They talk about part of this is to potentially bring Chinese people and to shine a light on the ski industry in China by having Eileen as someone that can be looked up to. I think there's legitimacy in that. Maybe there's also financial incentive. That's fine by me. I'm not mad at that. And I really think there is an interesting thing here too, where, you know what? Maybe we Americans can still root for her and wish her well. And Chinese people can root for her and wish her well and maybe here's a time when we care less about my nation is better than yours or like that's just sort of removed. Like Eileen is clearly an incredibly smart, capable person dealing with geopolitical logistics that I would have just melted down, you know, at her age. How about we just all root for her? Totally. And that's that's where like... I agree. We should just root for her. I will say, no matter what, this will be regarded as political. And that's not on Eileen. That's on the IOC. And that's on the foundation of our nation states. That is on the foundation of the Olympics pitting countries against each other. And to me, you're like, to navigate that is incredibly difficult. The fact is, though, this will always be seen as political and you can't escape that. Um, you know, one can separate identity and culture from the nation state that they grew up in or the nation state that they claim or that claims them. Um, you know, I, I remember Chloe Kim um, in the last Olymp Winter Olympics in South Korea. She was a darling of South Korean media because she really celebrated that, you know, her ancestry and culture comes from South Korea and she represented America. So you can do it. But the switching of sides the posing in a photo with Xi Jinping is going to be seen as political. And it's really, really unfortunate. And you can't, I say, you can't expect her to try to explain the, you know, human rights abuses, repression, dictatorship, and how she essentially brings comfort to that. Maybe it's just strictly family, cultural, and what she wants to do with the sport, you know, to to have one person try to explain for the crimes of their nation is 
like really unfair like you would we turn would we turn that around to you know if an, uh there's a canadian athlete um i believe bobsledder that is came to america and now she's representing america and she's a gold medal favorite is canada outraged that they're like well you know america had slavery like what the hell are you doing and you know are do we have to answer for these things i think it's really unfair to put pit these sports as political devices and in the the history of the olympics has been continually almost usurped by politics and taken over by politics and we i don't know who we blame that on party politics on the basis of a nation state on the, the ioc you know the ioc is incredibly political and is shown to be um you know when um the tennis player disappeared, the Chinese tennis player, the IOC was the first one to come out and defend China and show that she's doing okay. That had some some smells of something that was political and, and with some financial interest to it. So, you know, to me, like, don't lobby your accusations on Eileen, you know, lobby your accusations on the system of this all. Um, you know, like, for me personally, I'm bummed to she's not on my team and I get to root for her on my team. But I'm also like, well, she's from my area. I'm, she grew up skiing. My, her coach, uh, Jamie Melton, is a guy that I used to ski and go to the trampolines with. And so that guy's awesome. And so you're like, you do want to root for her, even though she's not on your team. So um, pretty, you know, it's she's walking some really a really tight rope. And it's a really hard one for an 18 year old to to navigate. Um it's it's pretty interesting how this is going to take off. I will say my overall take from the, the article, though, is I kind of left with a little more questions than I got answers. And there was some interesting John did a good job of just kind of almost opening the book a little bit without and like not necessarily answering everything. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, but I definitely had some more questions, dude. I don't I'm going to step away from the from the mic maybe and I'll just come back when you're done. You do um Yeah. You say what you need to say, man. Should I should I put my conspiracy hat right now? This is joking in many ways, but this is also just like I read a lot of nonfiction spy books. I'm like, don't know why, but I really like, not like the Jason Bourne ones, like the real ones. Like, and it's really being a spy seems like actually super mundane, not like they make it in, in movies. But uh, after that, I was like, hmm, I wonder if her mom's a spy for China. That was my conspiracy hat because there's just so many little things about it. And I was like, ooh. And then you start going down that rabbit hole and I think it's a dangerous rabbit hole to go on, which is why most of our conversation is going on the reality of a of a, a situation of like, you know, it's an 18-year-old deciding to represent her family, um, her cultural heritage um, in the Olympics. And that's actually the most logical. Uh, conspiracy theories are generally very freaking stupid, but... I don't know. I got a little 1% of me. I'm like, your mom's definitely a spy. Definitely. <laughs> that was that was all Cody, ladies and gentlemen. That is not where my head is at. I mean, I think a lot of people are spies, so I'm biased that way. I do. Yeah, like I have a close friend that um, I won't even say, but she won't tell me what she does. And her one of her best friends is is my wife. And I'm very convinced she's a spy. Very, very convinced. Yeah. So maybe I just have a bias to calling everybody a spy. <laughs> like what percentage of people, like out of a hundred, would you say like you imagine nine out of a hundred are spies? No. Like how, I'm just trying to get a 
benchmark here. Like one out of a hundred. I mean, there's definitely, but like they wouldn't be concentrated in the area, you know, concentrated in very specific areas. But yeah, like I'm convinced that my my friend is definitely a spy. I'm not going to elaborate more, but like there's a lot of like all the friends now have over the last 10 years come to that conclusion. So, so maybe I'm just biased and trying to label everyone a spy, but I don't know. My conspiracy hat was flaring and put the tinfoil hat on as a mom's definitely a spy. Oh, my God. I think we should move on to our next topic quickly. Yeah, maybe we go through this one quick, too, because we're we're running pretty. We're pretty good. Oh, wow, this has been yeah. a good conversation for sure. What are we doing? You posted this article. Uh, it's a really good topic. Um, so talk a bit about what's going on here. So yeah, Blevins Corner, Jason wrote a story about uh, OR trade shows and it said blending politics and business threatens the future of outdoor retailer and the unified outdoor community. So it goes into a bit of the history of, you know, outdoor retail pulling out of Utah because of a unified business businesses uh, together saying they're not standing for the, you know, the shrinking of the Bears Ear Monument for um outdoor lands being drilled and mined upon that the Utah state was promoting and, and, you know, advocating for to shrink Bears Ears National Monument. Um, and they continue to actually fight even the expansion after even Biden expanded it. So it talks about some of that history, but then it goes into some of the business side of things and just the overall, just, I don't know, the state of, of outdoor retailer and trade shows, national trade shows specifically, and so many companies pulling out of it. And as a, as a business owner who got our start by going to trade shows, you know, it's something that we think about. They're very expensive. And what is their actual gain and return on that investment? And personally, like I just kind of think, and he kind of addresses in the article is that there was a little bit of just using politics to actually just pull out of trade shows because a lot of big companies were pulling out of trade shows before the the whole move from Utah to uh, to Denver even actually happened. So um, the state of trade shows is very, very much declining, um, which to me, it's like, yeah, whatever. Who cares if an outdoor retailer is? But I will say for small brands, upstart brands, trade shows can be very, very valuable. Um, it's where we got discovered. It's where we got in front of uh, a lot of people, a lot of buyers, a lot of new new shops, and you're able to make a lot of connections. It's a great networking event. Um, but how do we how do we save trade shows? Because to me, they do have value, and it's generally for the the small guys, not the big guys. So right there then is that a deal breaker or the kind of insolvable roadblock if established brands don't need to be there and they were sort of maybe offsetting or drawing certain buyers etc like if that part stays true if we aren't going to see a return from big established brands are we not in deal breaker territory? Well, to me, so like one of the things I was hearing over the last few years was that like, if you don't have 75% of your sales done by the time of the trade shows, you're out of business. Like you, you're doing all your pre-sales and all your shows and the regional shows and the showing up at shops was vastly more important than the national trade shows. So what is the draw of a big trade show? Like, if you've already got all your sales done and it's different than in the past, you would literally go there with paper orders and sign orders. Now we have a digital world where, you know, you can send a catalog over in an email. Uh, you can pick some 
pick all the stuff you want over a phone and you can get all your sales done very, very quickly. So you're like, what is the appeal of a national trade show and why would a big brand who are the brands that are pretty much offsetting most of the costs that go along with this? I mean, you, you know, the expenditures that um, someone like North Face would put into it was millions of dollars per show. So the, the, the small brands are not, you know, creating our $10,000 buy for a space is not making outdoor retailer financially uh, uh, solvent. So, but how do we evolve a trade show so that it works for small brands and big brands? Is it something that's different besides a sales opportunity? They've mentioned bringing consumers in, but like, what is that achieved by bringing consumers in? So um, I don't know. I mean, as someone that's kind of doing your own sort of networking event what is your take on it i mean the blister summit seems like it's an evolution of a trade show very explicitly actually i mean having gone to outdoor retailer for you know a lot of years there were just things about the experience i didn't like and that's what led us to yeah creating this blister summit it is a more curated experience that was one of the frustrations of outdoor retailer, you know, say five years ago, is there was a billion brands there. And frankly, many of them I just did not care about, nor did I think our blister audience would care about. So it was just so cluttered that that's when, you know, it was like, well, let's, let's have a more curated experience. Another thing that mattered a lot to me was the fact that the the buying public wasn't allowed into those trade shows. And I thought, well, that's messed up. Like, this is the people that are paying MSRP. So yeah, we at Blister can go get on all this equipment early and go see it all and the rest. And we'll say what we think of it. But why don't we let actual customers get on this gear at the time when we're getting on this new gear. And so it's funny, like we're proud of that. I, we, I think we're the first ones to be doing that. And now I'll, I'm hearing a lot about let's, it's like now everybody else seems to be having this thought. My only thought on that though, is I do think that the community part of this is a difficult thing. And so if outdoor retailer wants to open a trade show to the general public, well, there's no inherent community there. Whereas those in, you know, the blister sort of ecosystem, they kind of know who we are. They know how we do things. They've been reading about and listening to podcasts with a number of these brands for years. To me, that still feels like there's a coherence there that won't be there if you just open your doors to anybody but I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that one. No, I mean, hey, there's got to be an evolution of it for sure. And I do think the on snow experience is especially almost the most important thing. And I think one of the things is I've kind of advocated for in the past. And I think that's where I admire Blister. But I think there's work to do still. And I think that's what the Blister Summit is trying to do is the education about gear is actually very lacking. And I think that is both from the brand side who, you know, creates the dumbest marketing words that you could ever imagine for their, you know, their version of, of, of steel in their ski and 
four different brands call it four different things and five different brands call rocker five different things. And you're just like, this is so confusing. If we can get just some sort of kind of unified messaging and terms that we can agree on, then we're going to be able to make consumers make better educated choices. So bringing consumers in on a testing kind of education level will help spread those messages. You know, I know from my personal experience, the, you know, the experience I have with gear, when I'm able to talk about that, I'm like educating a lot of people and trying to take like a lot of marketing buzzwords and digest them and put them into something that's more digestible for the general audience. So, uh, sitting in a trade show and walking through that and hearing that, I don't think is as valuable as doing it on snow. Um, again, there's a lot of other companies that make up the outdoor industry that don't make just skis. Um, they make accessories, they make apparel, they make weird little trinkets, they make gifts and things like that. And that's where you still, the, a trade show has to kind of exist because I do think it helps gain exposure um, and let people meet each other. Um, so much of business is always about relationships and building those relationships is really important by getting face to face. By the way, I will say another thing is when you're talking about just, you know, the marketing and kind of the inane buzzwords or whatever, or for years, we would see these videos coming out from outdoor retailer. And it was like, Hey, I'm Jonathan. Well, we never did this, but Hey, I'm Steve and I'm with so-and-so media outlet. And I'm here with somebody from Solomon. Hey man, walk us through the new lineup. And there's like four screaming babies in the background and there's people like walking yeah, in totally. front of the camera. And I'm just like, what are we doing here as an industry? I was, I was one of those people, not the media side, but I was the one that would jump in front of the camera for Solomon. And it was always, it was always a little awkward. Yeah. And so, you know, with these brand lineup videos that we introduced last year, this was our answer to like, okay, the product is expensive, assuming companies spent a lot of time, you know, and thought and energy into trying to create something good. This just is a shitty forum. This is a shitty medium. The 30 second video shot on the convention center floor. And so that's one of the things that, I mean, that was a direct response, like our, our brand lineup videos that people can see on our YouTube channel. That was a response to this. Like, let's do something more thoughtful. We'll be there to kind of press on some questions about, well, why did you do this? This thing was really good. Why did you change that? Are you worried about, you know, now the new product maybe not appealing to that same demographic and the rest? And I, I think... um Basically, we just kind of wanted to have smarter, more thoughtful, hopefully uh, more useful conversations, both for brands to explain why they've built what they've built, but also for potential customers to be like, wow, that really sounds like that product would be up my alley. So, yep, I don't know. That's I guess that's an advertisement for the summit or at least an explanation of like why we're doing some of the things we're doing. But um, it is, I admit, a bit. I don't know, funny, makes me smile a little bit when I'm hearing these articles coming out now and it's like, maybe we should have the public there. And it's like, cool. Yeah, we're doing that. 
So <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, I think if, if you just sum it all up is I think we're going into a world that's far more direct to consumer. And that is both in just being able to order products and get the things you want direct from a company, but that also comes to education. Uh, more consumer based, less middleman based is kind of the world we're continuing to evolve when it comes to business. So um, yeah, um, let's uh, wrap this thing up. What have you been, what have you been watching, reading? I've been watching and reading very little because actually this blister summit thing is starts in 17 days. So life is very full. So I did watch the first episode of the new season of Ozark. I think you had this on your list. I'm curious if you have a take on this. The only other thing is I want to give a shout out. Brendan Leonard was very kind and sent me unsolicited a copy of Shea Serrano's book, Hip Hop and Other Things. And there, like no reason to send this to me, just like a nice thing from a friend. And so I opened this yesterday and it made me really happy. Brandon and I love Shay. I can't wait to read this book. It might not really get finished till after the summit. That was just a really nice thing of Brendan to do. So thank you, Brendan. And if, if you guys aren't familiar with Shay Serrano, you should be. He's freaking awesome. I agree. I love Shay. He's a ringer, writer, author yeah, on podcasts. He's, he's always he's such a good good media personality. I really like him. So I know. Um, I've never been like I've never super gotten into hip hop, even though I think the culture around it is really cool. I almost should just read books about it to get more fascinated. It was just just a music choice. I was like, yeah, I've definitely listened to hip hop here and there, but I've never been fully sucked into it. So I, I, I but I am fascinated by it. it. Should be a book I should put on my list. Um, what I've been reading lately is actually uh, Snow Crash by Neil Stephenson, um, who's kind of an acclaimed sci-fi writer. I've been getting more actually into kind of like sci-fi books in general because I think, you know, they deal with a lot of big topics in these super interesting ways. Um, this was kind of an original cyberpunk style book, um, and it's been really fun. The characters may be a little lacking in their depth, but the plot goes pretty good and it's dealing with a lot of like philosophy, um, mythology. Um, it, it's kind of, that's what I've been actually starting to like about sci-fi a little bit more is they deal with broad topics in a weird, unique way. And so, um, it's been a fun read. I've been kind of, I was really, really stuck in like a nonfiction rut for a little bit. And so to kind of go back into fiction and can be fun. So been about halfway through that, um, I've been pretty good. And then, yeah, I've been, you know, Ozark season four came out and I've been, we've, Indy, our kid has been sleeping a little bit better and we have a little different schedule. So I get maybe like an hour of TV watching before he goes to bed, before I feed him. Um, and uh, so I've been kind of back into watching stuff and Ozark, I'm just a real big fan of. I think it's a great, great show. It's really gnarly, but it's good. Have we talked much about Ozark? I don't think we have. I don't know. I don't think so. Cause it's, it's been like dormant for like yeah. more than a year, yeah. year and a half, you know, with COVID and everything. So we haven't really, but you know, it's obviously you got the analog between, you know, a lot of the other crime and cartel shows out there, specifically Breaking Bad and has its most comparable uh, form to. But what I really, really like about this and one of the things with Breaking Bad that I thought was really, really good was 
I saw this poll once and it was like this, I think the ringer put it on and it was like, who's the worst, most hated TV show character. And we probably talked about this of being, and it was Skylar White, which I thought was a really good introspection onto our society because here's the woman trying to keep our, their family together, stopping a horrible person from making meth and doing horrible things. And people hate her. And you're like, wow, that says a lot about our society and the way we look at success. Um, so to me, what's interesting about Ozark is kind of has similar themes when it comes within family, when gender roles, power, empathy, love, all these things go really, I do a really, really good job. And I mean, I don't want to spoil anything from it, but the character development, which is what I think we talk about often in, in any sort of media is really, really good in this, you know, flipping roles, switching up these, these poignant moments that people cross over and then all of a sudden can't come back from, um, but also their own born in, you know, biological personalities that then they get into these events. And then how do you how do you respond to them? And the character development through the show is really, really fascinating. And I'm really curious to see how it plays out. I, I kind of am led to believe this is the last season of it. Um, I don't entirely know they did it. There's two parts of season four, which I actually listened to a podcast about um, this season. And they're they were saying they didn't want to do a season five, so they didn't have to pay season five rates. So they have season season four, part one through seven. Part one is episodes one through seven, and then part two is episodes seven through fourteen. But no one knows when part two is coming out. I assume they already filmed it, but r- regardless, um, really good show. It is it is pretty burly and gnarly. It's like that's the one thing sometimes I don't like about crime and cartel shows is there's so much violence, but they're so, and they're driven by violence, but, you know, putting people in extraordinary positions and see how they respond is generally a good theme of TV. Yeah. Also, Jason Bateman is just a national treasure. Let's just straight up. Like, he is genius. His so good. facial expressions, that, that dude can do like the most subtle thing just with his face or a look. And it's just perfect all the time. There's a scene in one of the episodes. It's one of the later episodes of the season where he goes into his funeral home and just watch out for it. Cause it is one of the most comedic yet like strangely scary moments that I've ever seen acted where he's pretty much just asking someone to leave the funeral home and the way he's talking about it and just his deadpan delivery of things is just, he's, he's so good. I agree. He's a national treasure. I mean, his, his range is pretty good. We got to talk about the NFL. I forgot. I mean, you actually put this on the list. Ah, so what a week ago, two weeks ago now, well, wait, we're going to talk about your 49ers fuck up in a minute, but yeah, I think the Buffalo Bills-Kansas City Chiefs playoff game might be the best football game I've ever watched. And I wouldn't quite say that because it's so resembled Big Ten college football where you just everyone scores and there's no defense. 
So that that's the one thing I will knock it for, um, because just by the end, it just got so bananas. I think it was one of the wildest games. I don't think one of the best. I would say that weekend potentially was the best weekend of football in football history because you had the Green Bay Niners game, which was just a defensive slugfest and that literally hinged on special teams play. That kind of football, I think, can be just as entertaining to a very like astute observer of the sport as you know leaving 13 seconds is too much time to leave Patrick Mahomes <laughs> you know like that was wild okay but cuz i've been thinking about this and wondering about this and i was like this can't be right can it that this is the best football game i've ever seen but here's my here's my argument in those big 10 football games which i i agree with you where they just become shootouts there's usually all these mistakes being made Right? Like dumb yeah. mistakes. And so two, I guess a two-part question here. Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Bills, and Patrick Mahomes, I'm trying to think of a football game where I've seen two quarterbacks play at an otherworldly level at the same time. Yeah. That's kind of where I thought that, you know, that is the differentiator between college football is there wasn't right. mistakes. It was just straight up amazing play. Um, you know, just some of the routes that the receivers were right running, just breaking ankles and then just a dart into the, the receiver in the end zone, those kind of things. It was pretty, it was like watching quarterback at its highest level that it can be played in this day and age. And that's why it was entertaining. Um, you know, and so like when we get into like, okay, well then what was a better game? Like something that comes to mind is like when the Patriots beat the Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl. Yes. But that was a complete meltdown on one side. And and in that sense, like if some of the greatest games where one team just has an utter meltdown, what I thought was maybe a bit different about that Bills Chiefs game is they were both playing at an unbelievably high level. It's just Allen and Mahomes kept making otherworldly plays. So if that if we're ruling out games where one team just does the full meltdown and ends up blowing it, what other games are up there for you for like maybe this is the best game ever? Uh, well, so that's where me as like a very nuanced football watcher, I would even say a lot of the Patriot games go into this. Um, but the Patriots versus the Rams Super Bowl, where it was like six, three or nine, three was the final score was one of the better games because you had the, you know, Sean McVay Shanahan style system and his unstoppable offense. No one could stop him. And then all of a sudden, Bill Belichick walks out there and goes like, I'm going to create an entirely new defense in two weeks and base completely shift our defensive philosophy and shut this down that then every team has copied since then. And to me, like those kind of things, I love that chess game of football. And I'm the one that's counting how many people are within five yards of the line and watching the defensive and offensive line before I watch where the, the ball goes. So those kind of games, I think, are absolutely fascinating. The the Patriots um a Super Bowl against the Seahawks, I think, was one of the greatest games ever played. That Malcolm Butler interception to end of the game was just unbelievable. Um, and that wasn't a mistake. That was just good, good play and good coaching and good preparation. So some of those games um, I kind of list up there. You know, I have some personal Niners fans when in 94 when the Niners beat the um 
the Green Bay Packers in the NFC Championship game, the catch two, as it's called, was just what an amazing game. Um, so, you know, you could, I think it's just more fun to watch offensive shootouts. So like people will bring up the Mexico city game within the chiefs and the Rams when they were at their peak. And it was like 55 to 50 was the final score. It's just fun to watch that. But I, I value defensive schemes and value kind of that nuance of the, of the game. Of all the things you've ever said in our reviewing the news conversations this is where you're being the nerdiest and like trying to be the nerdiest you want people to know that you are such a nerd that you can fully appreciate a low scoring football game (laughs) yes i guess maybe that's what i mean trying to project myself as a smart football watcher but I mean, hell, dude, my dad was a football coach his entire life. I grew up around football. I like kind of like to think I know the game well enough. You're stupid 49ers. They, I'm not a gambler. I, I am in a football league thing. And those stupid 49ers have messed me up all year long. Good riddance. Aside from you and I, I wrote you. It was like, you absolutely need to rename Indy Debo. Yeah, totally. That guy's amazing. De- Debo is amazing, but I'm I'm so mad at the 49ers. I don't wish them well right now. Dude, well, you you texted me, I think, both before the Cowboys and the Packers game. Who would you take? And I took, I was like, Niners both times. And if you would have texted me for the Rams, I would have maybe been hesitant to it. I was just felt like, I was like, you know, I watch every single game of theirs and I just didn't think they could keep it up. And they they couldn't, they, you know, for whatever reason, I, I think there's a multitude of reasons they couldn't keep it up. Uh, I think they outperformed what they were as it was. So I think it was a fun season regardless. Getting to the NFC Championship game as a fan, eh, yeah, of course you want a Super Bowl. But at the same time, that was a fun season. Is Aaron Rodgers going to be the 49ers QB next year? No, definitely not. Especially not after that game. Is Tom Brady going to be the 49ers QB next year? No, definitely not. I, you know, there was that theory that he'd come out and finish his career on his childhood team. He was there for the catch one um, as a child. Uh, It'd be kind of fun, but I think that ship has sailed. I think they're, you know, they're, they, they have some salary cap issues. Um, They got Trey Lance. I think they feel pretty comfortable with him. Um, They invested a lot and draft capital into him. So I don't think so, but uh, I think Rogers, man, he, what a heel turn that guy did this year. So I, I honestly don't think he will be even the Niners won't even look at him. Last thing Olympics. Are you excited? Mm. Have you been paying attention? What are you excited about? I've been watching the Chinese downhill training runs. I just wanted to say Chinese downhill. No, I've watched two downhill training runs already. So uh, Elise and I are full go on the Olympics. Um, she was, she's diehard figure skater fan. She was watching the nationals, the qualifiers. So um, yeah, it's on like USA and the Peacock and there's stuff that's already been on, but uh, the downhill looks actually really cool. I was pretty impressed with it. Um, I was actually texting with Travis Ganong yesterday. Um, and yeah, the course looks actually way better than I anticipated. It's still weird on a dry mountain, but the course looks pretty fun. All right. Olympics and snow crash and low scoring football games. I guess that's where we're living. That's where we're living. So, hey, man, uh, as always, this has been fun. Good luck with everything. I'm going to go back to the summit stuff. What are you going to go back to? 
kid upstairs. Fair. Yeah, I heard I got a break, break Elise. This was a long one, so I gotta go give her a little break. So apologize to Elise for me. But tell her it was your fault and that you wouldn't shut up, okay? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. <laughs> okay, I will. She knows that. She knows I'm a talkative person. So. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Have a good one. All right. Well, that is it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody, as always, for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we hope to see you right here in Mount Crested Butte at our upcoming summit, which kicks off February 20th. So come hang out with us and check out the show notes of this episode for all the details and information about this upcoming Blister Summit. Okay, bye everybody.